0: There's a real need to help teachers understand what should be used, but also then what shouldn't be used, right? So we can build our practice and our understanding of, of what's effective. At the same time, we have to learn what might be undermining some of that good instruction. The results, they've been immediate. And we had one of the biggest shifts in the state it's, it's almost
1: magical when it all comes together. And I think to myself, this is what education
0: is about. There were inequities everywhere. My students in South Texas ultimately taught me more than I taught them. Over 40% of our students were leaving third grade with less than proficient reading skills. And that was just something we had to stop.
1: The bottom line is that we can prevent reading failure. We can change the trajectory of these students' lives. And I just want to shout from the rooftops, it can be done. From Glean Education, this is Ed Leaders in Literacy, a podcast series that features educators and administrators who have made hard decisions about instruction, curriculum, intervention, and school systems to close the achievement gap and build equity by improving literacy. First, a word from our sponsors.
0: Go ahead and state your name and title and what you enjoy about working here.
1: My name is Andrew Follett. I'm the chief executive officer Uh, I have four young kids at home and they're learning to read, Uh, so when I think about the doors that reading has opened for me, obviously I want that same thing for my kids and that's what excites me about working here, about uh, being able to provide a curriculum that uh, gives all kids the opportunity to learn those vital skills and to be able to learn to read. Hegarty's daily phonemic awareness curriculum is used by over 450 school districts nationwide. Learn how you can get started at hegarty.org. That's heggert dot O-R-G. I'm Jessica Hammond, founder of Glean Education. And today we're speaking with Brent Conway. We'll be talking with him today about his work as the assistant superintendent at Pentucket Regional School District in Massachusetts and beyond. So welcome Brent, it's nice to have you here today. Can you take us to a little bit of how your educational career started and what got you interested in the work you're doing today?
0: Sure. I was an elementary education major uh, coming out of the University of Rhode Island and um, was going to, to set off and teach, you know, fifth or sixth grade, uh, and I, I don't think I paid much attention to teaching early literacy. Frankly, I think it scared me to death to have that level of responsibility to teach a kid to read, and, and that's how I started my journey in, in, in teaching um, back in my hometown, uh, teaching fifth and sixth grade, but recognized as we started to learn a little bit about teaching in like a workshop model, that there always felt like there was something missing as far as the, the explicit nature, like what, having to teach kids exactly what it is that they needed to be able to do. From there, I became an assistant principal and a special education team chair in another district. And then at a young age of around 30, I became an elementary school principal in Melrose, Massachusetts at Lincoln Elementary School. Uh, I was there for seven years as as an elementary school principal, Uh, and it was really there where I learned as a principal uh, around the the evidence-based practices and the research around how students really learn to read. And Lincoln Elementary School went on a journey while I was there. Uh, We were a school that was struggling. There were about 400 kids there. There were 24 different languages spoken in the homes of the 400 kids. It was about 50% high needs which was not typical for the rest of the city. Melrose is a a fairly affluent suburban city just outside of Boston. But the neighborhood school, we had no buses. The kids all walked to school. And the neighborhood we were at had a little bit of a different sort of student enrollment population than the rest of the city. And the the school was struggling. And our, our proficiency rates on our MCAS were around 50%. And we started on a journey to fix that And it took a little while, but in that, we learned a lot about how students learn to read, how we would support them, and how we need to tier the systems in order to to help students learn to read. We became a three-time Massachusetts commendation school for closing achievement gaps, and then became a national blue ribbon school in 2015 as well for closing achievement gaps. And we brought our proficiency rates up to 80%. um, and the teachers were just so incredibly proud of the work that they did. And, and as a community, it was really, it was great to be part of that work. After leaving Lincoln, I went to the middle school in Melrose where I was the principal for, for four years. Uh, and now this is my third year at Pentucket Regional School District in Massachusetts, which is up uh, tucked in the, the top corner of Massachusetts. And we have three small towns, uh, but a regional school district with about 2,500 students for elementary schools. And our work here has been focused on developing evidence-based practices to teach literacy. Because similarly, as when I started as an elementary principal, our performance scores here don't really reflect what they probably should be. So trying to to work with multiple schools across an entire district to use data to inform our practices and where we need to alter our curriculum, but where we also need to alter our instructional approach so that we can tier the supports and help the students who need it the most.
1: So take me through some of those first steps of how you step into a school that you recognize needs some sort of change and you start to kind of take the steps to make that change. Where do you begin and what's the first thing you tackle?
0: Sure. As an elementary principal, I know our our first step really was we let the data inform us initially. Um, And we helped the data, we allowed the data to help us determine what was not working for students. Where were the deficits? And then from there we could walk back and connect where the deficits were from a data perspective, To what was our instruction and what was our curriculum that might be a cause for that?
1: So, specifically, what data were you looking at?
0: So, going back to 2007, 2008, um, you know, our first data certainly was our state assessment, the MCAS, um, just as an outcome. But that doesn't start till third grade, third, fourth, and fifth grade. And, you know, to think that that is a third or fourth or fifth grade problem. Was not accurate. Um, that was a problem starting back in kindergarten, and and it's all connected. Uh, at the time, we were a school that was utilizing the DRA as a leveled assessment, and it really wasn't informing our practices. There wasn't a lot that it was telling us about what we could do with students. Uh, we were using the Dibbles at the I think it was Dibbles fourth edition back then, um, and. What we were finding, even on that back then, it wasn't correlating to our, our state assessment results. So we made adjustments in the third grade outcomes um, on the dibbles to match what was a predictive measure for the MCAS test. So, uh, and in later versions of DIBELS, the DIBELS 6 edition and on, they're they're correlated to national results as a much more. But back then it wasn't, we had to make adjustments on our own benchmarks uh, using the DIBELS because we had kids in third grade who seemed like they were fine on the DIBELS in second grade, fine on the DRA, and yet they weren't scoring proficient on the MCAS test. And, And that was a problem. So we needed to correlate those so that we could begin to do that work. And once we did that, I think teachers recognized there were things, there were signs earlier on in first grade of kids struggling with certain aspects of literacy that um, we we needed to address.
1: And so what's the next step after that? So data has taken a deep dive into and teachers recognize their, their gaps, where next?
0: So the next step we took was really beginning to learn more about how students learn to read. Uh, and we did that at the same time that we were setting up some structures and systems so that we could implement a tiered system. So uh, there, and there's two sides to this, and I, om- I often like to equate it to the simple view of reading that we have two sides, and then the outcome is is reading comprehension. We got the decoding side and your language side. In order to do this right, there's two sides to the work in a school. We have the we can, the professional development and the training for teachers so that they have the knowledge and the wherewithal to be able to instruct students with the way we know students learn to read. But then you also have to have the data systems and the schedules in place to provide those tiered supports uh, because some students are going to need um, more support. Some students might need a little different support. Some students will need a lot of differentiated support. And you need to have schedules and systems in place to inform that and then to have that in place. So you have different levers you need to be able to access to do that. So while we trained teachers in uh, those evidence-based practices and understanding how phonemic awareness plays a role, how the early decoding plays a role, and why it needs to be systematic in its development, Uh, and how it builds into fluency, um, and then how you teach vocabulary so that students can create greater meaning. All of those are really important. If we didn't have a schedule that allowed us to give those tiered supports, it gets lost. Um, The the kids who need the most support don't get it all the time. Uh, So we had read a book together. The book was called Annual Growth for All and Catch-Up Growth for those who are behind. And it was the story of Kennewick, Washington. And we read it as a whole school book with our our teaching staff. And that sort of became our mantra of annual growth for all and catch-up growth for those who were behind. And it was, how are we going to do this? And that was our goal. And and I think we did a pretty good job of it.
1: I love that you mentioned that book. I'll link it in the show notes as well. But I think it speaks to the importance of having a roadmap for supporting your school. It's one of the reasons that I started this podcast is that I know there's so many wonderful administrators doing this work and a lot of administrators who want to do the work but don't know where to get started. So it also seems to me like it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. You know, when we look at literacy progress in a school district, we need teachers on board to implement curriculum, to take the time to invest in PD. We need administrators to kind of look at their systems and how they're working. Are there any other elements, um, any other players outside of the administrators and the teachers that play a role in this as well, like classified staff who are often not spoken of, or the board making curriculum decisions that go into it? Can you tell us a little bit about those kind of less seen players and the role they play?
0: Yeah. You know, I think behind the scenes, having a schedule, for instance, that worked for us that allowed us to do this required a lot of work with various people outside of the actual building. We shared specialist teachers with other elementary schools. So it required a district wide approach. So fast forward to my role here as assistant superintendent. That was one of the first things we did is talk about it. We're gonna set up the structure to allow all this to work. And we're gonna begin to use the data. And now the professional development and the curriculum tools will come into place because you know, if you, if you don't have all that and you're trying to do it, people get frustrated and they don't see the results right away. But if you set up the structure for it and then give the training and implement it, that comes into place. So we needed our, our fine arts department to understand uh, we're going to have to change the way the music schedule works because we need first grade to all be teaching literacy at the same time so that we can flood that grade level with support personnel for 45 minutes. And we can do every kid's getting what they need, when they need it, for the duration they need it. And then we we need to stagger that. And in a district like I'm in now, that meant doing the entire district schedule that way. You couldn't just do it in one building. You had to do it in the entire district. So that took a lot of people to understand how you were going to change things. But it was all based on how and what is best to teach literacy for students. And that was the bottom line. And if it meant some people were inconvenienced, if it meant some people had to change the way they had always done things, uh, that's what we had to do in order to give kids what they need. So, yeah, I mean, in Pentucket, we we, we, uh, started, like I said, with the schedules and data systems. So, uh, you know, we were a district prior to me being here was using you know a guided reading assessment or a leveled assessment. Uh, we have switched to use a, a, an assessment that is a, a predictor of reading success in the future. So we're using Dibbles Eighth now. Um, and that and our data meetings around that help to discuss the specific skills that students need that they develop. Um, we, you know, we we added in Hegrity to use with our foundations to have a really strong foundational component. Um, and as we move ahead to next year, there's another component of our curriculum we'll add in uh, that will sort of uh, match that. And that's probably wit and wisdom, uh, and the geodes and the decodables that go with it. Uh, so really, once that comes in, the, now the focus really is the, the ongoing professional development to support people to understand how to utilize all of those components to teach literacy. Um, you know, and it's every time you think you're done, there's another step that you need to take uh, to, to just enhance it and to build knowledge. Uh, but the, we're, we're also, we're one of the, um, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education has an early literacy grant that we were a recipient of. And we're in year one of that, it's a two-year grant. And it's around uh, taking um, the the evidence and knowledge from research and putting it into practice. And the professional development, even despite the the COVID pandemic and having to do it virtually, the, the coaching and professional development related to that has been phenomenal. And most impressive about it is the dissemination by the staff that are participating to the other staff. So when you walk into classrooms and you see a teacher utilizing um, the heart word method to teach sight words, when you see a teacher using, um, uh, one minute drills for phonemic awareness, and they didn't participate in any of the professional development, but they're learning it from their colleagues, that level of, of excitement, enthusiasm, and, uh, you know, the collegiality among, um, among the staff is really impressive. And that's how practices grow and expand. And that's how we, we make this work for kids.
1: Can I ask you a little bit about the professional development as well? So it seems like you tackled kind of the data, you tackle the systems. Once you learn from the data, you're making changes in the curriculum, which is critical. Um, And then also you mentioned PD. So tell me a little bit more about that PD, because it's a large term and it could be so much. Is it PD that's tied with the new curriculum that's coming in? Is it um, a mixture of things, you know, tackling what? you know, you need to know about the science of reading or, um, you tell me, what does that PD look like?
0: So the PD sort of evolves as we go. Initially in year one, it was a lot of, it was bigger picture PD around um, shifting practices away from like a workshop model into more of a, a tiered model where, You know, they were skill-focused in the instruction. You had whole-class instruction. You had small-group instruction. So helping teachers to understand how to maybe shift that. PD around utilizing the data. So a lot of our data meetings are almost like professional development conversations around how to interpret the data and use it, for instance. Um, We also participated regionally with a group of districts early on with our reading specialists and leaders. So training the principals and the reading specialists uh, in the, the science of reading really understanding how the brain works, but connecting it to practice. So we were part of a whole regional group. We were fortunate we brought Emily Hanford up three years ago, and she spoke to 200 uh, educators in Massachusetts and we had our, our whole education, our literacy leadership team p- part of that. And that was the type of work training them so that as we continue to train teachers, they continue to expand their knowledge as well. And now we're, you know, the professional development now is much more into the nuts and bolts. It's the coaching. um, And that's fortunately being part of Massachusetts uh, Department of Elementary and Secondary Education Early Literacy Grant really is giving us that the coaching model of how you how you make this happen in your classroom. So
1: that's another critical component we haven't mentioned is coaching and Mm -hmm. the implementation of it all. Yeah, Yeah, Um, we're
0: not, I mean, we're not a big district. We don't have literacy coaches in our district. Uh, uh, You know, as the assistant superintendent, I end up doing some of it. Um, Our reading teachers, our specialists are, you know, spend most of their day supporting at-risk readers. Um, And our, you know, so that, that, that's not embedded into our district because we're small so to leverage some of that from the state has been has been really impactful so.
1: and it's important to have that policy to kind of guide the steps that you're taking as well so that i could see how that would be really helpful i had heard that you're involved with a facebook group called science of reading for administrators what teachers want you to know Sure. tell me a little bit about your
0: involvement in that so I had got connected with the larger, what, what I guess is now referred to as the mothership group, uh, the science of reading, <laughs> what, what, what I should have learned in college uh, that Donna Hibmanik, um had, had started. Uh, and at this point is now over 70,000 people across the globe, which is just fascinating. And, um, and it was sort of from just sort of following along with that and every once in a while chiming in with, with some of the work that we were doing very interesting to see around the country and, and even the globe, the folks in Australia, for instance, and, and the UK. And um, and then from that, Donna had reached out to a few folks who she recognized as administrators who, who were part of that and had said, you know, we, we really think there should be an administration group. At the same time, I was working here in Massachusetts with our Department of Education because they were rolling out their new early literacy guidance and it coincides with the dyslexia law guidance in Massachusetts that's happening too. So I was one of the administrators who was part of that. And it just sort of all fell into place. And Donna asked myself, Sharon Dunn, uh, Ernie Ortiz, and Stephanie Stoller, if we would sort of moderate and get a, a, an administrator's group started, because the the conversations for the administrators tend to be different. For instance, I, I see a lot of conversations in there uh, among teachers on, on, the, on the big one. Uh, around which sequence do you teach the vowels in and so forth. And and to be honest with you, I I don't really think of myself as a science of reading expert or or anything like that at all. The people are far more knowledgeable about that. But when it comes to the system side and how you utilize the data to inform all that, uh, that was things from the bigger perspective that I think I could offer. And yet for some of the folks in there, that wasn't a conversation they were necessarily interested in. So it just became this sort of breakoff group. And we're up over 1,000 members now. And, and of course, administrators are a smaller group. Um, but um, and, and we're actually running a, uh, an MTSS scheduling uh, webinar uh, in March uh, on a Sunday night for administrators on how to do that, uh, how to set up your schedules in a tiered system for teaching literacy.
1: I think that's so important. It seems like one of the amazing benefits of that mothership science of reading group Mm -hmm. is the connection, especially in today's COVID situation where people are not together and communicating about their um, strategies and resources. So this gives administrators a way to connect and to have some common space to talk about something that they are working on or want to work on uh, and to get resources from other people who have done it in the past. What
0: what an amazing opportunity. That's I, huge. I, I think in the end, I, I think, you know, we, for many years, uh, this is not a pendulum swing. And I think sometimes people, you know, they get hung up in, in terminology and pendulum swings and you know uh, research and science is not really a pendulum swing it's it's just sort of an ever-growing body of evidence to support you know how students learn and, and that's true of any field right um so as we learn more we should change and alter our practice to to match that so that's really what we're we're doing and i think you know getting an opportunity to hear and speak with folks across the country around some of these issues some of it generated from that facebook group you know, you realize that there's a real need to help teachers understand what should be used, but also then what shouldn't be used, right? So we can build our practice and our understanding of of what's effective. At the same time, we have to learn what might be undermining some of that good instruction. Because, you know, we can't just say, do this, do this, do this, and pile it on then it becomes overwhelming. Well, how do I fit it all in? How do I do this? What should I prioritize? Because there are sometimes there are things that we're doing that we learned at the time might've been an appropriate practice, but we realize now that practice might be undermining the real good instruction I'm, I'm giving. So, you know, most of the time in life, like we want balance in life. I, you know, I want balance in my diet, I want balance with exercise, you know, in my relationships, all those things we want balance. Sometimes in literacy, the balance, if, if, if the balance means sometimes this undermines what the good instruction is for kids, then that's not necessarily the best thing. And, and that's what really the, the evidence and the research is showing us, and that that's not always what's best. And, you know, I, I think the other thing we really work to do, whether it be in Melrose or in Pentucket in a tiered system, it's that there's shared ownership here of the kids. It's not, oh, that kids need help, so they go to the reading specialist. It's no, we're, we're all in this together. We're all capable of supporting almost every one of these kids, we can do it. Um, and that every special education child is a general education student first. And if we do this from a tier one perspective, based on uh, how we know students learn how to read, um, the need for the more intensive supports later on really are diminished. Uh, that's a really critical aspect of this. And you know there, there are a whole group of kids, probably almost 50% of our kids, and Nancy Young talks about it. She has great visual of the ladder of reading. Uh, those kids pretty much will learn to read almost regardless of the approach we use. Assuming we give some approach and there's reading and there's some instruction. It doesn't have to be overly organized and systematic. Those kids will just generally learn to read. But there's another group of them, 50%, who they really need things a lot more direct, explicit, sequential, systematic. And even among them, there are some who need it intensively um, taught that way. But if those kids need that, half the kids need that in a direct, explicit, systematic way, that's the way we should be doing it for everyone. And if kids need more intensive stuff, then we can add that in by having a system, right? And having that schedule and having those pieces in place. But the data is pretty clear. Uh, That's what we need to do at tier one is, is teach all students in that way and then tier the supports for those who need it more intensively.
1: And I think it just speaks to the importance of the administrators in this process. We often think of the teacher's instruction, but you make such important points that sometimes we need to remove habits or practices that are hurting. And really, the administrators need to be the ones to support that step. Uh, And they also need to know, you know, the the systems to put in place. So, um, well, Pentucket is lucky to have you as their assistant superintendent, and and I'll look forward to continuing to see the growth that your regional district is making. So thank you you for coming on. My pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Brent Conway and his work at Pentucket, you can visit him at www.prsd.org. Thank you for listening to our Ed Leaders in Literacy podcast. To find links to the articles and resources mentioned in this podcast, go to gleaneducation.com/backslash/edleaderspodcast and access them in the show notes. Bye for now.
0: This episode was edited and produced by Nita Charisse.